Um, I'll ask you to open your scripture this morning if you have it. Uh, I'm going to rewind just um, two verses to get a little bit of context, and um, we'll finish out 18 through 20 this morning is actually sort of, um, there, there's two halves to the sermon. And the first part is sort of getting you to recognize the reality of the spiritual domain and what you actually um, interface with. Now, you are a, a physically created being, but you are a spiritual being that's enmeshed in, in physical matter. And so that's, that's kind of a weird thing to think about. But you are, your choices, your decisions, your will is a spiritual um, mechanism. It is, is what operates through the world, and you just happen to do that in the vehicle of your flesh. And um, too hard of a separation between those things leads to something like Gnostic thought, which we've talked about several times where we think, well, everything in the, the physical realm or the flesh is evil and spiritual things are good. And, and so we say, well, we shouldn't engage in anything physical because that's bad and we should only be spiritual or never, never the two shall overlap. But we're, we're in this part of um, Acts where Paul has come into Ephesus, and Ephesus is um, the, the epicenter of, like, if you want to think about it this way, like, pagan spirituality. Uh, it has the temple of Artemis, which is one of the um, seven wonders of the ancient world. It's, it's huge uh, by comparison to any other structure at the time. Um, the actual population of the city dwarfs everything at its time. I mean, but and everybody in the city is sort of inundated with this, this spiritual reality of, we engage with kind of whatever we need to to satisfy our desires. And so when we talk about the realm of desire or the seat of will, that is a spiritual thing. Um, the you that makes decisions is a spiritual you. Your, your body has like certain needs like, you know, water and, and food and, and air, right? Those are physical needs. But then like when you decide to partake in something, that decision, that will is a spiritual thing. And so we're... Um, we need to talk about this morning what it means then that we have this, this physical thing that interfaces with spiritual realities and um, what, what happens when we just sort of leave our desires open to whatever um, will quickly sort of satisfy those things and, and what happens. And it, it's um, just most easily described or summed up in the idea of dominion or domain. And so I'll just recap for you what's happened. Um, last week, we, we've been kind of tracking through this story and the importance of um, the fact that um, these disciples appear here as Paul arrives back in uh, Ephesus after his trip. This is now his third missionary journey. And he finds some disciples that don't even know the Holy Spirit exists. And the Holy Spirit is the important component of the new covenant. That was what was promised in the new covenant. I'll give them a new heart and I'll put my spirit within them and they'll obey my laws. And so um, accompanied with this new covenant is the authenticating signs of um, baptism of the Spirit, which is like speaking in tongues and prophesying. And we're seeing these things manifest. And then along with that, Paul's, um, his work clothes, if you will, his, his apron, his handkerchief are, are, are being used and they're taken to people and these healings are happening. And so two things are happening, like physical healing is happening because of a spiritual, um, a spiritual component that, that God has um, given the authority and the power to, to make that happen. And so there's physical healing happening. And then at the same time, it, it's um, being used to, it says, to cast out evil spirits. So then you have this really distinctly spiritual component. And then we kind of zoom in on one particular story that kind of is um, typical in the sense of it's a type of what, it, what spiritual domain looks like. And we, we zoom in on these seven sons of Skeva or Skeva, and they, they decide to undertake 
um, proclaiming the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And so we see them go into this house. This man had an evil spirit. And they tried to uh, cast out the evil spirit, and they're overtaken, okay? And so that catches us up to, um, to uh, verse 16, where we'll start this morning. And uh, so let me pray for our time and the word, and then um, we'll continue. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to see clearly what you would um, say. And more than that, I ask that you would um, not just give us new things to think about, but you would use um, your word to renew our minds and um, to, to shape us and mold us and um, expose things in our hearts um, that perhaps we've overlooked or consciously have um, tucked away. Father, we need your help to um, reveal sin in us and to break up the hard ground where um, we have not allowed um, the Spirit to do its work. So I ask this morning that by the Word, um, you would do that work. I uh, pray that you would keep me from error, that you would open our hearts and our ears and our minds and our eyes to receive what you would speak and say this morning. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. It says, uh, if I can get rid of that. There we go. Okay. And the man... Uh, this is the man, the, the seven sons of Sceva have gone in, and it says, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them. And it says, he mastered all of them. That mastered is a, a crucial word here. This is a, a, if you like to underline or just note something, there it is. The man in whom was the evil spirit, you have a, a physical guy, a, a human being, in whom was the evil spirit, and there's the spiritual component. So this evil spirit is having influence and able to um, take over, in some sense, what the, the man's behavior is. And he leaps on these seven sons, and it says he mastered them all. And he overpowered them, also important, so that they fled out of that house. Um, this is not a, it's not a, a literary flourish. There's a definitive article, that house. And um, there's a specific em emphasis on that for a particular reason. And they leave naked and wounded. Now, later on, um, Paul writes um, to the Ephesians, right? They're, they're in Ephesus. He writes to the Ephesians, and he, he gives us a, a familiar, um, if you've been around the church very long, a familiar um, warning to heed. And um, it's kind of, there's like a bit of irony that this incident becomes well-known throughout all of Ephesus, and yet um, he's going to say this, we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Now, hold on just a second. These guys were wrestling with flesh and blood. They left that house exposed, naked and beat up, right? Paul's going to say, like, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, there's, there's two mistakes that you can make easily to take this to mean something that Paul doesn't mean with it. And the first would be something like this, um, that, that um, the spiritual powers um, have, have, a, have no fleshly component because he's saying here, we don't wrestle in flesh and blood, right? That's how he, that's how he leads out. And what we've just seen is that there's definitely wrestling in flesh and blood, and there's influence in flesh and blood. So we, we, we might mistake this to mean that Paul's saying, so in our bodies or in our mortal being or in our physical state, we don't actually engage with any of these spiritual things. And he doesn't mean that. He's saying what, what you are interfacing with can't be overcome with flesh and blood. You can't wrestle in the flesh and blood against these things. Though you will see them manifest in this way, through flesh and blood. It's the only way that demonic powers and forces and powers and authorities have the ability 
to manifest in, in ways that they desire, okay? And so the first, the first mistake would be thinking, well, there's no fleshly component to this. And the second would be then to conclude that he means not to wrestle at all. Right? He says, we do not wrestle. So you go, well, well, so there's no point in putting up a fight, or how can I put up a fight, or should I put up any kind of fight? Well, he definitely means that you should, and there's just like a hint of him saying, look, the, the fact that um, these spirits are, are, are able to be something they're familiar with, that they saw this man overtake these seven other human beings, right? That's a, that's a wrestle with flesh and blood, but he was not uh, overcoming by his own power. And he overcame those that all those who entered the house. And so the man had a demon, which is a spiritual being, an evil spirit, and he is flesh and blood. So in light of this story happening and becoming famous throughout all of Ephesus, um, we should not conclude that that was way back then, and, and here we are now. And so we, we don't avail ourselves of, of any of these kinds of situations because, you know, for some reason, magically, all of the demonic influence has left the world. Well, that's not true. Paul, Paul's writing this um, letter to the Ephesians, to the church, to any believers at all, that you should know that there are rulers and authorities and powers that are in this present darkness. And that means he's applying anything in the world that you see that is um, uh, aligning with the, the present dark powers is in darkness, not as, as opposed to, to light. And so there's a domain, if you will, a dominion of darkness. And this idea of domain is applied to, to three things here. The first is... Um, it's applied to the man. The man is overtaken. He's being dominated by the evil spirit. That's the first one. The flesh and blood of this guy is being dominated by um, the spirit. The, the second is um, the priest who came into that house. They are overtaken and they're unable. They said they're powerless to fight this, this, this demon. They, they go in there even with good intentions. Like they want to uh, allegedly cast this evil spirit out. And they're going to do it by some form of you know, magic or, or trickery or at least make it appear like they've been successful, but they too are mastered. And then the last place that this domain is applied to is the house itself, right? They fled that house, naked and wounded, okay? So we have kind of three elements here. And so the question here is, how, how does the domain apply to us personally? How does it apply to those that, that interact with some spiritual powers and darknesses? And like uh, an actual, why, why this house? How does this house become so important? So the question I have this morning for you that you um, maybe have thought of at some point, but like you didn't actually put it together like this, is why would anyone ever um, avail themselves of spiritual powers, right? Like why would you go into um, uh, some sort of relationship knowing that you're giving up control? If, if domain happens in, the, in dark ways because of powers and spiritual authorities, why does anybody ever enter that house if it means that you are dominated or enslaved to that thing? Well, we always, always enter because it happens by invitation. And the invitation is always to be, you can be the master. And that sounds good to us. You will be master. Here's this thing. Here's some, here's some way to um, please yourself, to, to fulfill a desire. And, and when you avail yourself of that thing, you're accepting that invitation. And you think you're becoming the master when in reality, you're going into a house of slavery. Okay? So, um, in uh, Romans 6, Paul is, there we go. In Romans 6, Paul is talking through this, and he says, um, If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Okay? Now, notice two things. He said, um, like, whoever, it's a person. He says, whoever you obey. 
If you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, not to the thing. But it's always presented as a thing. You have this desire. I have this solution. Okay? And, and the solution always feels like you get to be in control. You, you seize control and autonomy, and you say, that sounds good to me, and you grab that thing, and what you've done is just said, this is my master. Right? You've set your desire, and this thing seems to meet that desire, and you say, this is it. And he says, there's only two powers here. There's only two beings, if you will. There's the, the, the power of God and righteousness and availing yourself of that desire and making sure that that is always your supreme desire. Or you can set it on thinking it's you, but really you're setting yourself on the same deception that um, Satan first offered the uh, humans in the garden, which is you, you can be God. You can be like God. You can be the master of your own des- destiny and, and fulfill the desires of your heart on your own terms. And that's the invitation. So the reason why anybody ever enters the house of slavery to be mastered in the, the dark domain is because it feels like an invitation to be your own master, to be your own God. And what Paul is saying here is that as soon as you avail yourself of that, that person, that being, you're, you're saying, Yes, you, you have dominion over me, and we are slaves to whatever it is or to whomever we obey, either of sin, which is going to then perpetuate itself and lead into death, or of righteousness, okay? So we're too often deceived because we think this thing doesn't have an, like an explicitly spiritual component. Like when, whenever you're tempted to something, it's not a demon in red skin and horns that knocks on the door and says, sell me half your soul for this thing, Right? If it appeared that way, you would, you would politely refuse and move on, right? Hopefully. That was not emphatic as I thought it would be. You would consider it and then refuse? I don't know. Impolitely refuse? You should refuse. The thing is, we, we engage with this because it seems to meet our desire, and we, we deceive ourselves into thinking that it is, it's not spiritual. And that's why I said, we, we have the problem of thinking this is a physical thing, or this is a small decision, or this, this thing doesn't seem to interface at all with my faith. It, it's, it's amoral in that sense, but it's really not. It says, is the, the question you should ask is, am I obeying the desire of, of God, or am I obeying what Satan would have for me here? And whether or not you decide on one of those things, the deception is through our desires. So that's how Satan operates. He offers you something, and you're tempted by not something outside of yourself. That's, that's the other problem we have. Sin is not something that's out there that sometimes you fall into. Sin is something inside of you that you externalize because you see a way for that to manifest with you. And, 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 and that's why it's a spiritual thing when you make physical decisions. Because what I said is the will inside of you. The you, when I say you, that's the being. That's the soul that God has put inside of you. And that makes decisions, and it avails itself of desires constantly. And when you choose, you're choosing one domain or the other. Do you see that? Okay, so the deception here is about our desires, and Satan prefers our indifference or our, our, our apathy towards the fact that he regularly enslaves us to things that we say, well, that doesn't seem to have any particular spiritual component, so I'll go ahead and do that. And just like, you know, drugs, it offers this first fix high, and once you're part of it, you're addicted to it, and you can't seem to um, un- unchain yourself from that thing. Why? Because you have given over control, because you are already mastered by that desire. You fulfilled it in some way that you were not intended to, and so you've said, this thing is actually control, and I'll, and I'll give myself over to that, and you willingly go into that house, find that handcuff, and you put it on yourself. 
because he's invited you in to, to fulfill your own desires. So Satan prefers that we look at things in the way that we say, you know, this doesn't feel like it has any particular, I mean, I'm not, I'm not using a Ouija board to make this decision, so it must not have anything to do with the realm of darkness. And that's the way Satan prefers it, because he would much prefer somebody that puts up zero resistance and doesn't, they're not even aware that they're in chains. So our apathy towards this is part of the deception. So we are um, particularly problematic that we are slaves often and think we're free. We think, hey, I, you know, I don't feel like I have an evil spirit. I'm not you know, doing anything crazy. I'm not throwing up pea soup and my head's not spinning around, so I must be okay. But you might regularly be availing yourself of dark spiritual things. And so we, we see this problem um, constantly. So this demon showed up um, in, in the sense of this man, and we don't know how he got in this condition, only that he's, he's so given over to whatever force this is, that it's able to manifest and in, in overpower seven other human beings, okay? And so what we're meant to see and conclude from this is seven is a particularly, you know, common number in Scripture because it represents like a fullness. So even with seven other human beings, they're unable to overpower this guy. And in this house that is dominated by a man that's dominated, they're unable to do anything against the spiritual forces of darkness. And that's exactly what... Um, Jesus said when, when they were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan, he said, why would Satan turn against himself? If he did, then his kingdom wouldn't stand. Well, that's exactly what they do. These, these guys have no spiritual authority here. They're not bringing light into this situation. They too are just part of the same condition as this man. And so they're not going to have any veil. And so they're exposed for what they are, which is powerless and weak. So they leave that place, even with seven flesh and blood mortals that try to overpower this guy, and they lose spectacularly. So accepting the invitation to be your own master is the first step to slavery. And the result is that you go into that house thinking that you're an honored guest, when in reality you are being, um, going to be a master to who is master of that house. The master of the house is who has control, not you. You think you're being invited as an honored guest, but in reality, you're going to, to be uh, enslaved. The danger of dominion is this. In, in 2 Peter, where, where Peter's talking about the, the problem of false teachers, he says, that for whatever, um, they, it says they promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. That'd be the false teacher. It said they promise you freedom. Like, hey, if you do this thing, and they, they, they offer you, again, a way to fulfill your desire that, that um, is, is fleshly, and, and you avail yourself of that. And he says, for whatever overcomes a person, for that, to that, he is enslaved. So there you have both things. You have either the, the person to whom you're enslaved and also to that thing. So we're told in uh, verse 17 that this, this, um, this playing out becomes known throughout all of Ephesus. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And I think that this there is important. So let's just camp there for a second. This becomes known. What becomes known? What becomes known? That, that the, the, the name of Jesus that Paul proclaims, that is able to have power and authority over these things, um, is, is um, night and day with all of these other spiritual powers and authorities that we are familiar with. And so what we're supposed to conclude here is that there's no title. These, these guys have entitled themselves the high priests of, of uh, the, the Sceva, the high priest, and they're his son. So not a title. There is no uh, amount of people, like no, you know, if we get numbers against the spiritual powers, then we'll finally win. No good intention. They go in to apparently relieve this man of his evil spirit. There's no particular power or authority within themselves that can turn the power of the devil against himself. 
That's what the this is. And again, um, Luke is emphasizing that this Jews and Greeks. And so, and so why does he do that? Well, because um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews were told that if anything was from God, that if it was a prophecy, if it was a wonder, if anything happened, and, and they wanted to know whether or not it was true, that God would accompany that thing with, with um, proof, with signs. And so that's what they always seek. And so one of those signs that they were supposed to be looking for is, is healings and, and um, that the kingdom of, of God was uh, vanquishing the kingdom of darkness. Well, here you have it happening in Ephesus, that the, the kingdom of God is advancing because evil spirits are being cast out and people are being healed. So the Jews are having the sign that they're looking for. And the Greeks seek wisdom. This is the idea of knowledge, some kind of secret idea that I can know so that I can be saved. This is what the Greeks want to know. They have like this, the, the secret insider circle of, of gnosis. That's where Gnosticism comes from. And so they seek this. And, and Paul's going to say, Jesus is both of those things. He is the signs and he is the power uh, of uh, God to salvation. Both Jews and Greeks, um, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. He's both. He meets both conditions. So all that they're seeking is, is satisfied in Christ. And so uh, the, the, um, the whole picture being painted here is that the kingdom of God has set uh, itself up against the kingdom of darkness in Ephesus. And so we kind of have this, this typification of the battle. Now, it's not really much of a battle because if God wanted to, he could easily wipe out the kingdom of darkness like tomorrow, like now. But why doesn't he? Well, it's, it's serving a purpose. Even the, the demon here, the demon-possessed man, shows the power of Christ's name. Because of, because of what happens, he overpowers these um, false priests that are trying to appropriate the name of Christ. And because of that, the name of Jesus is extolled. Even the demons have no choice but to, to prove the power of Christ. So, um, all right, moving forward. We have the, the, power of the, the power of darkness and the domain of darkness, which we regularly can avail ourselves of by fulfilling our desires in the flesh. And it says, then, so, so also many of those who were now believers, they came and they were confessing and they were divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, so we'll take this last section here as a chunk. So in response to um, Jesus' name being, becoming great, becoming known, people being healed, evil spirits being cast out, the, the, the result is people become believers. The church grows. Surprise, right? So, so what happens when the church grows? Well, people become um, interested and open to what God would have for them and what the, the Spirit does in their heart. That's why the importance of the Holy Spirit um, being inside of you is, is doing something. It's producing something. So as um, Christ grows in you and the Word of God is being taught, it should, it should have and produce results. But before those results come, um, and, and those results are manifesting themselves by these, these spiritual books being burned, okay? These, these people that were practicing... Um, uh, Magic, which we talked about last week, are, are going to burn them in the fire. But I, I want to notice before we move past this that that's not the prerequisite to become saved. That grace comes first, the gospel comes first, and then once they're saved, then it says, then some of those who believe um, uh, were now who were now believers were then confessing and divulging. It's not it's not fix your life. It's not straighten things out, and then 
and then you can be saved. It's be saved, and then God will, as he increases his influence and the Spirit grows in you and the Word of God have its, has its effect on you, that it will increasingly produce holiness in you. But that's not the prerequisite. It doesn't come first. Does that make sense? So the gospel comes in grace, and it says it's taking you just where you are, practicing all the bad, dumb stuff that you do, availing yourself of dark and de- demonic domain, but God saves you out of that. And then he puts his spirit inside of you and you're born again. And there's so much importance to that. I don't want to skip over it because that's what will produce holiness in you. What produces um, moving away from darkness into light. The light of Christ always confronts the darkness. So that if you have Christ, it's inevitable. It's inevitable that the light of Christ will confront any darkness in your life, in your soul, in your being. It may, it may not happen in the way and as quickly as we like it to, but it will have to happen eventually. That collision has to happen, and one of those things will, will win out. And it should be Christ. Unless you continue to avail yourself and prove that, he's not in you. But if he's in you, he will win. Okay? So here's, here's where we're getting down to. The light of Christ always confronts the darkness. And um, Colossians uh, 1 tells us this, that, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from the dominion, from the slavery, from the house and the dominion of Satan into and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then John says later, if we say um, we have fellowship with, with him, that him is Christ, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That's, that's what I was just saying. Christ is the light. He says, I, I am the light. I came into the world so that whoever follows me and believes in me will not ever be in darkness. And so that if you have Christ and the Holy Spirit inside you, that Holy Spirit and that light will confront the darkness and it wins out. But he says, if we, if we lie to ourselves and say like, we don't have any sin that needs to be confronted, we're, we're showing that we don't have fellowship with God because the more that you're in the light, the more you see the darkness in you. The more you abide, the closer you get to the light, the more you see places that there's darkness in you. John um, says that, that we don't practice the truth, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So even as the, the light is exposing places where we're not doing all that we should be doing and we're, we're availing ourselves with the wrong desires, he says if you abide in that, then you're, you're going to be cleansed by Jesus' blood. So there's, there's a benefit in that one, it exposes, but also that by remaining in it, by remaining in fellowship, it also cleanses us. But everyone who does evil hates the light. That's what Jesus says. Everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever practices truth comes into the light. So he says there's, there's, two, there's two practices here. One is abiding in the light and one is abiding in darkness. And if, if you choose one over the other, then you're practicing that thing. And as Paul said, then you're, you're offering yourself to that thing, uh, to be your master. And you're, you're offering the members of your body to slaves of, of either darkness or of righteousness. And so we have this problem where we are born again. We have a new spirit, a new life inside of us. The new creation has come. That's the, the beauty of what happens in the new birth. And you have new desires and the ability to obey and walk in the light. But you're still in, enmeshed in this physical body and it's not perfected yet. And we have this, this, this problem where we have these warring desires. We have what the Spirit tells us to do and leads us to do and what He wants us to do. And then we have what we want to do, our desires. We have these, these two disputing things inside of us. So 
In Romans 7, um, Paul, Paul says it like this. I don't know that I have this on the board, so let me just read it to you. He says, I, I find this to be a law. Not, not, it's an unwritten law. It's something that happens no matter what happens. So he says, I find this to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Why? Because it's part of who you are. It's, it's your desires, the very things that you, you want to do and avail yourself of. He says, I, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. In my inner being. So it's, it's what, what, what's birthed new in him, in the, the new creation, the Holy Spirit. In my inner being, I want to obey God, but I see in my members, literally his, his flesh, his physical body, another law waging war against the law of my mind, and it's making me captive to the law of sin. And the law of sin is this, that, um, that sin dwells in your, your members and that you avail yourselves of those desires and then it brings forth death. So he says, these things are at war in me. And he calls himself a wretched man. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And it does, you don't get delivered from it until you're perfected. You either die, imperfected, and then in new creation, you have a new physical body and you don't have this same war where you're imperfect. But for right now, you have a struggle. So that first, that first uh, Ephesians passage, we, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but we do wrestle. And, that, and that's the wrestling, the, 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 the new nature and the old nature. Our, our desires that we have now in our flesh and, and what it is that God leads us and, what, and wants for us to do. Because he sets us free so that we can serve him. That's the law that, that we want to do. We want to, we want to obey Christ. We want to, we want to say he's all that I desire. But we have this, this problem. So we're set free to be free so that we have the testimony of the power of God's name. So in Mark um, 5, there's a, um, a familiar story of the man who was full of many evil spirits. He says, he, so many, he says, um, they're a legion. There's thousands uh, in this man. So um, let me walk you through just a couple of key components of this passage. This is in Mark chapter 5. It says, a man with an unclean spirit, he lived among the tombs. So he, he lives in, in, in an unclean place because he has unclean things inside of him, influencing him. He's, he's sort of, uh, he's overtaken, he's overpowered, he's outnumbered. And so he, he lives in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore. It says, they, not even with the chain, for he had been often bound with shackles and chains, but he had, he had wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Is that not the same kind of language that we're seeing here where these, these men try to come in and with whatever means they can, they avail themselves to try and cast out this evil, but nobody's able to? Oh, only God can. So Jesus shows up and he says, night and day he's among the tombs. That means all that he does, he's um, on the mountains, and he's always cr- um, crying out, and he's cutting himself with stones. He's, he's harming himself physically uh, at, the, at the will of this demonic influence. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran, and he fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? And then he says an interesting thing, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This is the same language that these seven sons say, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. It's, 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 just a, it's an emphatic oath. It's a command. It's a demand that you do something. And how is it that these demons can demand something of Jesus? But they're, they're just saying, honestly, tell me this. And so they, he answers, what have you to do with us? And as they have this dialogue, he, he finds out that this demon is, is many demons. There's a legion. And he casts them out. And the response to this later is that he, he sends them into pigs. But verse 8, uh, I'm sorry. 
Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then later in verse 15, it says this. And, and they came to Jesus and they saw. So this, this man has the, the, the spirit cast out of him. The, the, they go into these pigs. They run into um, the sea. And then the man goes, or there, there's, sorry, the people that were taking care of the pigs, they go and they tell all the townspeople and they come back out. And that's the they there. I'm sorry, I had to catch you up. And they came out to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, or I should say the formerly demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, and he was clothed, and he was in his right mind, and they were afraid. They find that he's been released from the power of this evil spirit, and he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. He's reversed all of the things that we first introduced to him. He's, he's out of his mind. He's living among dead things. He's hurting himself, and here he is. He's clothed and in his right mind. Unfortunately, here's our problem. Our testimony is that, yes, God set me free as an idea. It's an idea, but I still, I still remain in house. I still remain in the house of darkness. I still occasionally go in and I put these um, handcuffs on for fun. And the problem with that is that that's not the case. You've been set free to be free. And the, the testimony of the, the, the demon-possessed man is that everything that he once was has now been reversed. Everything that, he, he, that showed that he was unclean has now been corrected. Here's what is happening in this last um, part of this passage. Those who are now believers, they, they come and they're confessing and they're divulging their practices. They're confessing and divulging. They, they have to come in, in a public way in a conspicuous way, they're, they're saying, I, I was doing this thing, I used to be this, and then they're severing themselves from the ties of that which were, they were availing themselves to slavery, to sin, and to death, and to darkness. They're, they're burning the books. They don't just say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore, and keep the book. They don't sell the book. They don't, they, and whenever we talk about burning books, it gets a little weird because that's got a bad history in history. But the point is this, they're, they're cutting off the things that um, they had that were, that were shown to be sin in their lives that they were using um, to, to interface with demonic things. So they're confessing. And, and here, you, you need to hear that this is not just for them or just for people that are practicing magic or dark arts. We're told if we're, if we're faithful to confess that Jesus will forgive us. But confession here doesn't mean something like tell another human being that you're a bad person. Confession literally means to agree with God. And what you're agreeing with God about is this thing in, that I'm, I'm doing something inappropriate, that I'm, I'm fulfilling a desire that I have in a way that's not right. And you confess that. And the reason why confession is so powerful is because it's no longer secret. It's not in the dark anymore. When you, when you, when you tell yourself you're not going to do that thing anymore and there's no accountability there, you'll go right back to it because nobody else knew about it. So confession is powerful because it's public. And it, and it holds you to something. And then also cutting off yourself from access to that thing. From, so that not only do other people know that you're not going to do this anymore, but you don't even have, uh, it, you'd have to work pretty hard to get back into that house. Does that make sense? So they're, they're confessing and they're divulging and, and they're cutting themselves off. And uh, cutting um, ourselves off from sin is always painful because it's drastic. It, it, it requires something of us. And um, let me get there. Okay, Matthew 5, 29. 
Uh, this is part of the um, Sermon on the Mount, and, and Jesus has been talking about um, the problem of not just the things that we do, but then the things that we, we have in our heart, the things that we think about, that lust and, and, and anger and, and those kind of things are just as bad as killing somebody and just as bad as committing adultery. And so he goes on to say, look, if, you, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. That's drastic, right? And it's conspicuous. If you're missing an eye and you're missing a hand. But he says, if this thing is causing you sin, it's better to get rid of it. These, these books were worth, that the people have done different conversions on it. Just here's something like 130 years of wages for like 5,000 people. It's a lot of money. There's, there's, there's value in this that people have invested in because these were secret knowledge about how you can fix something or how you can cast a spell on this or that, right? And they burn these books. It's a drastic thing to get rid of them. And he says, better you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. The call, the call to action here is this. As, as you've been moved from the domain of darkness to light, and the word is being preached to you, and the Holy Spirit is inside of you, and Jesus is growing, and he's the light, and he's exposing dark things in you, you, you have a choice. You either recoil from that, and you go hide in the corner, because you'd rather not see the dark things that you've actually been interfacing with. Um, I, I try to think of like a good, a good analogy, and I, I, it's like you, you go home now, and uh, the power goes out because the weather's bad. And uh, I hope you, if most of you have dogs, that's good, okay? So you, you get in bed and you're like, hey, I'm just going to curl up and get warm. And the lights are, it's dark, you know, you can't see. And you, you curl up and your dog gets in bed with you and he's snuggling and he's licking your face or whatever, right? And then, then the lights come on, boom. And it's not a dog. It's a big, hairy grizzly bear, okay? And you, the light exposes this ridiculous bear that you've been snuggling with and mm, I love you, right? And this thing is dangerous. It's going to tear you limb from limb. And the lights expose that and here's what we do. We like roll over and pretend that that's not in bed with us or we haven't gotten in bed. We coddle our sin or we confuse it with something that's amoral and we say it doesn't matter. But this is what it means to be in the light. Jesus exposes what we do in the darkness and then we, we are supposed to then cut ourselves off from that thing and not coddle up to it. But that's exactly what we tend to do. So the call to action here is the hard thing that Jesus calls us to do. When you see that this thing is causing you sin, when I've exposed it in you by the word of God, by the spirit of God, by the help of the community of God, and, and you, you've got to divulge it. You've got to confess it and cut yourself off from it. Make no provision for the flesh. That's what Romans 13 14 says, the, the law at work in your members is that you want to fulfill your desires in ways that, that don't always accord with the Spirit of God. And yet we're, we're told here to not give any, don't give any quarter to it. Don't give a space for it to happen. Because if you do, then you're offering yourself to that service and you're then reshackling yourself to those things. So, confession, divulging, and cutting yourself off. Um, this is going to interface directly with what happens and the importance of it actually happening. Because what the wrong testimony is, is for everybody to agree to, to, to do something in this way would be sin. Or, or 
to, to avail yourself of some particular practice or some particular way of doing things is, is the wrong way to do it. And then for Christians or people purporting to have Christ and to love God and to have the Spirit, then to continue to participate in those things. The only thing that does is ruin the name of Christ and ruin the testimony that the power of Christ can actually um, kill sin in our lives. So we are either to be killing sin or sin will be killing us and it will be killing our testimony. But the result of when the Word of God increases, when the Spirit of God has its way in our community and in us individually, then it makes an impact on the place that we live. In Ephesus, this makes a huge impact. And we're going to look at that next week, not just like in, in physical ways, but in the spiritual dominion that Paul started talking about, spiritual powers and authorities and domains. And those get ever bigger, bigger, bigger. And so here we are being called to be individually accountable by the Spirit of God so that that testimony can take place. I showed you guys that clip at the beginning of the Lord of the Rings. I mean, it cost Frodo something. Even in the end, his desire for this ring of power, he couldn't give it up, you know? And it's, it's the, the, the demise of um, Gollum, right, who comes and he, he, takes, he takes his finger. He, he actually steals the sin from him, but it's, it's Smeagol who couldn't let it go that actually falls into, um, into the, the, the lava, into the Mount Doom, and, and actually destroys the ring because this is the picture of what happens when we can't let go of sin, right? He's so happy, so overjoyed when he has this thing. He goes over the side and he falls over and, and he goes into his own destruction because sin leads to death. And that when we won't let those things go, when we won't cut ourselves off from them, that's going to be the result. And so this morning, what you're, you're called to do is not for me to examine your life and to help you see those things but for the Word of God and the Spirit of God to examine your life so that you can be helped with seeing those things and then bringing them to God and confessing the ways that you've um, offered yourself to this slavery and asking for help either by not, no, this isn't either, but I'm going to end. The community of God is so important in this. The, the problem of feeling like if I keep this a secret, then nobody will know. They'll, they'll, see, they'll think something terrible of me. Could, could we think something more terrible of you than we think of ourselves? Like we're, we're all in the same boat here. These, these people were divulging that they were practicing magic and dark arts. And the question I, I want to leave you with is this. Instead of minimizing this thing that you know you shouldn't be doing and saying, well, it's not that big of a deal or it doesn't really feel like it's really taking over. It doesn't control me. If you just fill in some sin that you, you don't struggle with, but you know is a problem, and ask, how long should that continue in the life of a believer? If you're a murderer and you're converted to Christ, how long should you continue to have murder in your life? Just dabble in it occasionally. If you're a thief and a robber and you come to Christ and he's spirits inside of you, how long should you continue to just occasionally steal? Okay, so here's the thing. Whatever it is that you've got in your mind that you've minimized and you've tucked away in the corner and you only occasionally think that you go to, that has mastered you. And you first need to admit that. And you need to admit it to somebody else that can help you. Not to condemn you, but to help you. By the Spirit of God and by the community of God, you cut yourself off from the sin. And it will grow and the Word of God will flourish and help not just us, not just the community, but then it changes um, those that are, are around, and that's our witness and our testimony.
I'll leave you with that. I'll pray. Father, thank you for the morning. I do